reaching the height of his popularity, followed almost everywhere that he went by hordes of people who were anticipating, of course, his rise to power and an almost certain liberation for the Jewish people from their Roman oppressors. Jesus found it necessary to pause and say something to his disciples that we are so used to hearing today. We don't give it a second thought. Keep in mind, they were hearing it for the very first time. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23. The cross that Jesus was referring to was, of course, the Roman cross, which was not only an implement of the most horrific type of death, but it was also a symbol of profound shame to anyone who would have to endure it. It's hard, really, to give a modern equivalent to the cross of ancient Rome because our modern-day executions are carried out so quickly and so relatively humanely, if you can refer to an execution that way. Of course, we, we use methods like the electric chair or a lethal injection and a few others to execute those who are condemned to die today. And yet even when you consider the firing squad and hanging and the guillotine, right, those are all still infinitely less barbaric forms of execution than the Roman cross, where the condemned would, would hang for hours, even days, being nailed to a wooden cross, often naked in a highly visible public place until they eventually died from asphyxiation or cardiac rupture or sepsis or even predation by nearby animals. It was meant to be an excruciatingly painful, slow and humiliating way to die. In fact, it was the most gruesome execution imaginable. And so you can understand how Jesus telling people that they would have to take up their own cross if they wanted to actually follow him, you can understand how that would have been quite confusing, right? Just imagine you're following your commander into battle, expecting a great victory, but then your leader says to you, by the way, uh, if you're going to come with me into battle, you'll have to tie your own noose first and then bring that hangman's rope with you. Then you can follow me. Wait, what? It's not surprising that Jesus describing his own death and the need for his disciples to take up their means of death as well just in order to go with him would be misunderstood, right? Because at that point, uh, there was no precedent outside of the prophetic overtones of the Old Testament sacrifices. They didn't have the gospel written down the way that we do. They didn't have a lifetime of growing up in church learning about these stories like we do. It's, it's not surprising that they didn't understand what following Jesus would actually look like. What is surprising is that 2,000 years later, after 2,000 years of church history, 2,000 years of having the New Testament, 2,000 years of hearing these stories, 2,000 years of the gospel being taught, his disciples still don't understand what following him actually looks like. Some probably do. But most of us, at least in our culture today, I just don't think we get it. 
Even though we hear it over and over and over again, even though uh, we wear crosses as jewelry, right, which is wonderful, even though we talk about living sacrificially for Christ, as we should, we still don't get it. Because look, Jesus didn't say, if anyone would come after me, let him be denied and let him endure his cross daily as needed. No, that's not what he said, but that's exactly the way that we think about following Christ today. We know at times we will surely be denied by other people. And we know at times we may have to endure the sufferings of the cross that are thrust upon us, but that's not what Jesus said. Not even close. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You understand, Jesus was not saying that there will be times as a disciple of Christ when you may have to endure the way of the cross. No. He said every single day you must choose to embrace the way of the cross. In other words, we don't wait for the cross to come to us. No, we go and pick it up. and We take it with us. Well, what does that actually look like? Well, Luke gives us a clear description. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples finally got it. And once they got it, they started living it. And then Luke describes it one particular time after they'd been arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel. He says, when they'd called in the apostles... They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, sorrowful for what they'd experienced, asking God to heal them and bless them and to give them a comfortable life, a life that they could look forward to, a happy... No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. They got beaten, then they left the presence of the council. Are, are you kidding me? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5, 40 and 41. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. The word dishonor in that verse is the ancient Greek word adamadso, which can also be translated as shame. In fact, if you read that verse in several other translations, I know at least the, uh, the KJV, the NKJV, the NASB, they all say that the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Hebrews 11.35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They refused to leave prison after being tortured because it was the highest honor for them to suffer shame and torture and prison for the sake of Christ. What is that all about? They were choosing to take up their cross daily and actually follow Jesus. Do we even have a clue today what following him actually looks like in our pampered, self-entitled culture. I'm talking about church culture, where we get so easily offended, so incensed by anything that even embarrasses us today. I'm asking, what would you do if you were actually put to shame by someone else because of your stand for Christ? Listen, what would you do if someone actually struck you because of your testimony of what Jesus had done in your life? Would you stand up for yourself? Would you fight back? Or would you rejoice 
Would you praise Jesus for allowing you the opportunity of the high honor of suffering embarrassment and shame and real pain for the sake of the gospel? Because that's what they did. By the way, they did it with tremendous courage and great compassion, as we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to Mark, where Jesus demonstrates for these early disciples what your life actually looks like, what it actually looks like from day to day to day, when you pick up your own cross and you take it with you to work and to school and to church, to the market, to your neighbors, everywhere you go. Listen, I'll tell you, it's not a comfortable way to live. Having to deny yourself and die to yourself, die to your own pride, die to your own desires, die to your own entitlement, die to your own rights, to your own preferences, and instead embracing the way of the cross, you live a life of self-denial, laying everything down for Jesus Christ and his people. That is not an easy way to live. It takes a tremendous amount of courage and compassion. And yet the hard truth is the vast majority of people are not at all willing to live that way today. Even though Jesus plainly says that if you don't live that way, you cannot follow me. I don't think most people today, I don't think most professing Christians today understand what following Jesus actually looks like, which is exactly why he shows us what it looks like in this story. Because we must move beyond simply saying that we believe in the way of the cross and actually start embracing the way of the cross ourselves. So let's pick up the story where we left off last time at Mark chapter 10. We'll begin by reading verses 32 and 33. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. If you were here uh, two weeks ago, you'll remember that Jesus had left the towns and villages in and around Galilee where he'd been ministering and was heading south toward Jerusalem and ultimately the cross as foretold by the prophet Isaiah 800 years earlier uh, in his prophecy concerning the Christ where in chapter 50 he says, I have set my face like a flint, meaning I've turned my gaze toward Jerusalem and the cross, which Luke also confirms in his own account of this same story when he says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 51. And so here, Jesus is continuing that very journey on the road. Mark says going up to Jerusalem, even though they're heading south. Mark says they're going up because Jerusalem was 3,500 feet higher in elevation than Jericho, where they're going to end up at the end of this chapter. So it was common at the time, given that high elevation of Jerusalem, to talk about going up to Jerusalem because regardless of uh, what direction you were actually traveling, the road to Jerusalem and consequently the road to the cross was uphill all the way, literally and figuratively. And then Mark says, Jesus was walking ahead of them, which at first glance seems like a rather random and somewhat insignificant detail until you read his next statement. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Amazed and afraid, why? Because Jesus was a wanted man. 
The religious authorities had made it abundantly clear how they felt about Jesus as he continually stood up to them doing the work of the gospel, even though they'd accused him of blaspheming God, accused him of associating with people who weren't good enough to be in their religious club, accused him of being demon-possessed, accused him of breaking God's law, and they were constantly trying to entrap him in religious arguments in order to justify destroying him. Jesus was a wanted man. And everyone knew it, especially his disciples who not only witnessed the aggression of the religious authorities toward him firsthand, but who had also repeatedly heard from his own mouth that he was going to be killed. And of course, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to know that the headquarters of the people who wanted Jesus dead was Jerusalem, the very place he had set his face like a flint toward, the very place he was walking to in this story with great resolve. Right? It's one thing to tell your friends while you're living and working in and around Galilee that at some point in the future the people in Jerusalem are going to kill you. It is something entirely different to actually and intentionally then start walking straight to Jerusalem where those same men who want to kill you are waiting for you. And just in case that wasn't enough to scare the living daylights out of his disciples, Jesus reminds them, hey fellas, I want you to come with me. Oh, and by the way, You'll need to bring your own cross with you too. As we'll see in the next part of the story, Jesus assures them again that they will suffer the same fate for following him. In other words, the bell tolls not just for me, boys, but for you as well. Is it any wonder they were not only shaking in their sandals, but amazed at the resolve of Jesus, knowing the unspeakable horror that he was walking toward. And yet here he is, leading the way. This is an aspect of the life of Christ that we don't often talk about, but we should. Because embracing the way of the cross means embracing a life that will necessitate tremendous courage, even when you're full of fear. Because listen, uh, courage is not the absence of fear. You know that. Courage is what we do in the face of fear. God knows we're going to be fearful at times. In fact, he's the one who created us with the capacity to know fear in the first place. So it's not the absence of fear that makes us courageous, just like it's not the absence of weakness that makes us strong. Now, the Apostle Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, Paul says, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. How many of us could say that of ourselves? I'm satisfied. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, Paul says, then... I'm strong, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. You understand, strength and courage are choices that we make when we feel weak and afraid. These disciples were scared out of their wits, and yet they were in lockstep with Jesus. They may have been a few feet behind him, but they were in lockstep with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. This is the very picture of what it looks like to embrace the way of the cross with tremendous courage, even in the face of great fear. And look, I know that uh, we don't necessarily walk around thinking that we lack courage in our Christian lives today, right? Uh, but the truth is there's an easy way to tell. You just ask yourself, 
When was the last time I had to exercise real courage to do something for Christ? And listen, uh, the answer isn't the same for everyone. Okay, to, uh, to go to church, for instance, on a Sunday morning in this country, particularly this part of the country, requires no courage at all because going to church in the southeastern U.S. is still culturally acceptable. But look, uh, going to church in some parts of the world can get you killed, right? Just going to church in some parts of the world requires tremendous courage. My friend, Dr. Kevin Boone, a pastor in North Carolina, posted this on Facebook just this week. He said, there's an incredible underground revival in Iran Here's a quote from an article and an Iranian believer. I'm quoting. The article says, The only church in the book of Revelation not critiqued by Jesus was under persecution and suffering. And this is what the Iranian believer said. If freedom is such a great thing for the kingdom, then why is Europe and America in the state they're in? An Iranian believer asks, When we walk outside, we don't really care if we get arrested. We're not upset. If we get arrested, what is 50 years in prison compared to eternity with Jesus? For us, going to church costs us nothing. But for some, it costs everything. And so look, I don't know what it is for you that requires great courage, but I do know this. If you can't remember in your recent past when the last time was that you had to exercise real courage to do something for Christ, then you're probably not embracing the way of the cross that every disciple of Christ is commanded to embrace if you're actually going to follow Jesus. Right? Because embracing the way of the cross will absolutely and often require you to exercise great courage in your life, even in the face of great fear without exception, okay? There's no version of living for Jesus, of embracing the way of the cross where you get to be insulated your entire life from prejudice and derision and ridicule and rejection, even abuse by other people because of your stand for Jesus. And that isn't just uh, standing for Christ out in the world, by the way. Sometimes we have to take a hard stand for Christ within the church. The Apostle Paul warned the church leaders in Ephesus. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. But listen to this part. He says, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 29, 29 and 30. We know that's true, don't we? And I'll just be honest with you, there's so much pressure today in the American church to accept ideologies and theologies, even attitudes that are absolutely antithetical to the gospel. As a pastor, I've actually found, as silly as this may sound to you, I've found that I have to exercise courage within the church at times, courage to stand for what is true according to the gospel far more than I ever seem to have to exercise courage in standing for the truth outside of the church. And because I love the church desperately, it is very hurtful to me to have to hurt the feelings of my brothers and sisters, my church family, by speaking the truth. And look, not just in teaching the scriptures, but simply in dealing with people who are passionate about things that contradict the life and teachings of Christ. And so at times, 
I have to exercise at least what is for me a lot of courage to speak the truth, even though every fiber of my being wants to please people because of my affection for them. I want to make everybody happy all the time. Yet the way of the cross says, I have to speak the truth in love no matter how much it may hurt them or me. As John Bunyan wrote in The Pilgrim's Progress, what God says is best is best, though all the men in the world are against it. Now look, that may not be an issue for you. Maybe it takes no courage at all for you to speak a hard truth to someone even knowing how much it's going to hurt. We're all wired differently. You see, it's different for everyone. So I don't know what aspects of embracing the way of the cross make you fearful and consequently require great courage on your part. But I do know this. If you haven't experienced whatever that is for you in a long time, you may not be in lockstep with Jesus nearly as much as you think you are. And I'm telling you, it's a question worth asking yourself. When is the last time I had to exercise great courage for the sake of Christ and his gospel? Let's keep reading as Jesus continues to describe to his disciples what he's going to have to go through in order to embrace the way of the cross. Verses 34 through 45. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I'm baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when, they, uh, when the ten heard it, they began to become indignant at James and John. I guess so. Right? You, can, you can almost picture the other ten disciples saying, hey guys, we can hear you over here. Paul continu or, uh, He continues, excuse me, Mark, verse 42, and uh, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, this is key, must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you were here for chapter 9, you'll remember that the disciples were having an ongoing discussion back there about who was the greatest among them. A discussion that it seemed at least Jesus had shut down when he picked up this little child as an object lesson and said to his disciples, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all, just like this child, Mark 9, 35. And yet, incredulously, 
after explaining to the disciples the depth of suffering and shame that he would experience, they, uh, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Right on the heels of that statement, we find out that the disciples are apparently still having the same conversation that they were having back in chapter 9 as James and John. You'll remember, those are the two that Jesus referred to as the sons of thunder back in chapter 3, verse 17. Those two approach Jesus and ask him to grant their wish for one of them to sit at his right hand and the other on his left in his glory. Uh, okay, according to Jewish custom, the first place of honor was to sit at the right hand of a ruler. Psalm 1101 uh, 1 Kings 2.19 are examples of that. And the second place of honor was to sit at the left. And in fact, uh, that was even practiced by students who walked with their teacher during the day. It was even applied to angels according to the Talmud, the central text of rabbinic Judaism. I'm quoting from the Talmud. It says, of three walking along, the teacher should walk in the middle, the greater of his disciples to his right, the smaller one at his left. And thus do we find that of the three angels who came to visit Abraham, Michael. You know, Michael is the archangel, the protector of Israel. Michael went in the middle. The Talmud says Gabriel at his right, Raphael at his left. Whether or not that's true or not, the point is you see the mindset in Hebrew culture at the time. In other words, not only were James and John asking for the two most prestigious places in Jesus's kingdom, but every one of the other disciples knew exactly what they were asking for. And so Jesus says, look, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink or to be baptized with my baptism, which of course is a reference to the suffering and shame that he's about to experience, to which they reply, well, of course we are. And so Jesus says, well, that's good, because you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized in my baptism. James was the first apostle to be martyred. He was beheaded in Jerusalem while John lived out his life exiled on a remote island called Patmos, but not before being boiled in a vat of oil in Rome. Then Jesus explains to them again that they were missing the whole point of following him. So he repeats his teaching from chapter 9, but this time with uh, even greater force. He takes it to another level. He says, listen, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That's the Greek word diakonos. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is something altogether different. It's the Greek word doulos. In other words, if you're going to be great, become a lowly servant to others. But if you want to be the best, become a slave of all, do lost, the last and the least of all. Like me, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his own life as a ransom for many. By the way, in Semitic grammar, the many was a reference to utter totality. Right? In other words, when Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, don't be mistaken, he was very clearly saying, I have come to give my life for all. You understand, this is what it looks like, Jesus says. If you want to get ahead in my kingdom, if you want to follow me, you must embrace the way of the cross, which means embracing the way of shame. Not just a servant, but a slave. And not just a slave, but a slave of all. The lowest posture among others that you could ever 
achieve. And of course, the early church was marked by the shame of following Christ. Remember Acts 5.40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. To be beaten, scourged by order of the Sanhedrin was to be made a spectacle of by the most respected leaders in the community. First, you were stripped to your waist at a minimum, and then you were whipped with a tripled strip of calf's hide twice on the back and then once on the chest, and then twice on the back and then once on the chest, and then twice on the back and then once on the chest, around and around and around, not to exceed 40 times according to the law in Deuteronomy 25.3. It was such a brutal beating. The victims would inevitably cry out with each blow and even sob deeply from the unimaginable pain while others stood by and watched. Luke describes it as suffering shame, a depth of suffering and shame that we can't even begin to imagine, and yet how did they respond? They rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. For the name of Jesus, evangelist and author Leonard Ravenhill said the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. The truth is I'm not sure we have any idea what it means to embrace the way of the cross today. Bible scholar James Edwards compares disciples today with those two disciples, James and John, as they approach Jesus. He says, the brothers hope to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest, or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. Think about that statement for a moment. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest, or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. Think about that. Why do you come to church? To be elevated or to elevate others? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. I have friends who, every time they do something good for someone else, they post it on Facebook, and then they add some kind of comment to the effect of, I'm so humbled to be able to fill in the blank. Jesus said, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, Matthew 6, 3, and 4. When you think about your life, your dreams, your plans, your goals? Do you see people as a means to that end, meeting your plans and dreams and goals, an end that serves those plans and dreams and goals? Or do you see them? Do you see them, those people, and the, the meeting of their own needs as your dreams and your plans and your goals? Because at the Last Supper, just before Jesus was to be hung on that Roman cross, and he knew it, instead of looking to his friends to console and comfort him in his darkest hour, he got down on his knees and washed their filthy feet. Shameful. Then he asked him, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord, 
and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you, John 13, 12 through 15. Is that how you see other people? As an opportunity for you to be a slave to all. Or do you see other people in light of your own self-interest? God, help us. God, help us if we use our status as Christ followers to Lord over others. To create barriers between us and those who are not like us. To look down our noses at those who are less fortunate, less savvy, less successful, less appealing, less popular, less acceptable. God, forgive us for religious pretension that looks down on others when we should be looking up at them from our knees as we wash their filthy feet. And listen, if doing that seems shameful to you, then thank God you're finally getting the point. Embracing the way of the cross means embracing the shame of the cross. It means being a slave of all. Shameful indeed. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 46 to the end of the chapter. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in the great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Make no mistake, that is a political statement. There are certainly political implications when he calls out Jesus by using the phrase, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question he asked James and John. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He followed him on the way. <clears throat> the way to where? The way to the cross. Jesus is on his way to the cross, his own death. Jesus is on his way to die. And here's Bartimaeus, this blind beggar who could have easily been viewed by Jesus as nothing more than a nuisance, a distraction, an annoyance while he's trying to focus on the overwhelming, slightly important task ahead of him. Jesus has already healed untold numbers of people anyway, and now he's going to save the world. He certainly doesn't have time for this blind beggar. At least that's how the other people there saw it as they try to shut Bartimaeus up, but he would not be silenced, and Jesus would not be deterred from showing great compassion to this blind man. So he calls Bartimaeus to him, and he heals him, and then something interesting happens, as if healing a blind man isn't interesting enough. Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed him on the way. Jesus told Bartimaeus, go your way. So Bartimaeus follows Jesus on his way. The way. The way to what? The way to the cross. 
You see, when Jesus told Bartimaeus to go his way, he obeyed because he was not only healed physically, he was healed spiritually as well. When Jesus says to Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well, it's the Greek word sozo, it means to save. Jesus not only freed Bartimaeus from physical blindness, he freed him from spiritual blindness as well, which means Jesus' way, the way of the cross, the way of shame, the way of suffering had now become Bartimaeus' way. And interestingly, in the fourth century apocryphal work, the Acts of Pilate. It's also known as the Gospel of Nicodemus. It's not biblical literature, but historical nonetheless. In chapter 6, verse 4 of that book, Bartimaeus is recorded as appearing at Jesus' trial along with the others who'd been healed by Jesus as a personal witness on his behalf just before Pilate condemns Jesus to death. Now, of course, we don't know if that's accurate or not, but if it is true, then Bartimaeus certainly came to understand that the compassion he was shown by Jesus had to be returned in kind. And in fact, even without that story, we know from Mark that Bartimaeus became a follower of Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, which means at great risk to himself, he embraced the way of the cross. He embraced compassion, the compassion of Christ, not to be confused with the compassion of this world, which is always conditional. As Bartimaeus knew all too well, as the crowds were trying to shut him up because his convictions were not the same as theirs. You see, the world will have compassion on you as long as your convictions are in line with the convictions of popular culture. And yet the moment your convictions are perceived to be at odds with the culture, compassion from the world goes right out the window. No matter your lot. On any other given day, Bartimaeus may have been ushered straight to the healing rabbi walking by, but this day, Jesus was walking by, the one they all expected to liberate them from the Romans, the one who would cast off their oppressor's rule and give them their freedom back. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem to begin his political and military campaign as far as they were concerned, which means a blind beggar shouting for Jesus to stop and help him was nothing more than a distraction getting in the way of their agenda. But Jesus' way wasn't their way. Jesus' way was the way of the cross. And that same compassion that was driving him to the cross caused him to stop and heal this man. Okay, listen. Jesus will never call you to anything in your life that will preclude you, prevent you from showing compassion to other people. You hear me? If whatever you're up to no matter how spiritual it may be, whatever you're up to in your life, if it doesn't include you showing compassion to other people all along the way, then it is not the way of Christ that you're following. If Jesus himself, on the most important journey the world has ever known, his own journey to the cross, if while on that profoundly important journey to save the world, Jesus took the time to stop and heal a poor, blind, socially awkward, loud-mouthed beggar, then there is nothing that you are up to in this life that is so important that you cannot show compassion to others along the way. In fact, in fact, compassion is the very essence of the way of the cross because the cross is the ultimate example of compassion to an undeserving world. You see, there's no way around it. If you cannot show compassion to your wife, 
If you cannot show compassion to your husband, to your kids, to your parents, to your friends, to complete strangers, if you cannot show compassion to people you really like and people you really don't like at all, if you cannot show compassion, then you cannot follow Jesus Christ because the cross he hung on for you demands it. Is that easy? Is that comfortable? Is that self-gratifying? No, not usually. Because to embrace the way of the cross is to embrace the death of self. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, take up his own death daily and follow me. That is not an easy way to live. Embracing the shame of the cross, dying to yourself, it takes a tremendous amount of courage and compassion, and yet the vast majority of people refuse to live that way, even though Jesus plainly says that if you don't live that way, you cannot follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So when's the last time you denied yourself to the point you had to exercise real courage just to do what Jesus was calling you to do? When's the last time you denied yourself to the point that following him meant embracing the shame of the cross? When's the last time you denied yourself to the point the supernatural compassion of Christ overwhelmed your natural desire to reject the need of another? Because you understand that's what life looks like when you follow him. And listen, uh, you understand a faith that does not lead to following is not a saving faith. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And yet sometimes I wonder, do we even have a clue what following Jesus actually looks like? Because a saving faith in Christ is a following faith in Christ, and it's the way you must embrace if you're truly going to follow him. It's not an easy way. It's not a proud way. It's certainly not a self-gratifying way. In fact, in fact, it's uphill all the way. But it leads to the cross. And it leads to Jesus, who's there, waiting for you to pick up that cross and follow him. Let's pray.